the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs editor Eno Saris, and today we'll be discussing a pair of outfielders trending in the opposite direction and whether there is any value to be found in the Phillies' first base replacements. But first, I have to admit I'm a bit disappointed, Eno. I fully expected you to organize a meetup in Seattle to celebrate the 2013 debut of Erasmo Ramirez, and that just didn't happen. Orgasmo Ramirez, you mean? Uh, you know, <laughs> the official starting pitcher of the Sleeper and the Bus podcast. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Not quite money in the budget to, to to fly around and watch my favorite players all the time, but uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm happy that it's home. I mean, I, I did I did notice from my research on him that he throws the high fastball. And that I think a different pitcher in a different ballpark might have uh, some homeritis issues. But, um, you know, 93 miles an hour, you know, he used to be at 88, 89. So at 93, with a great changeup and an average slider, I think it's all systems go. I, I, I sense the, an Erasmo Ramirez society starting to, to rival the Corey Kluber society that Carson Sestouli has uh, founded. Yeah, we'll have to see about that. So let's get to our most interesting player alive today. And you know, there is a new Miguel Cabrera in town, and his name is Yasiel Puig, who every single day seems to be the most searched for player in Fangraphs. Obviously, we can't talk about him every single podcast. So we're going to move on to number two, and that is Matt Cain. No surprise there. He gave up eight runs two starts ago with four walks and just two in one-third innings. Last start, he didn't even make it out of the first inning. He gave up three runs and three walks. What the heck is going on with Matt Cain, and what is an owner to do? Well, I mean, the, 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 the hard part is that there are now some reports about him, uh, him being uh, hurt or that the Giants are worried that he's hurt or something. But, you know, I've talked to him three or four times now in the clubhouse, and he's never mentioned anything about injury. I haven't seen anything about injury and you know for a guy if he's injured his strikeout and walk rates are, are fine I mean he's good at about an eight per nine and a, and a two and a half per nine so he's still still got above average control still got uh, average to above average strikeout rate um, so I, I doubt he's really hurt what I would say is that I think that he's probably a little tired um, you know you I think we see this a little bit with pitchers that pitch deep into the postseason that's an extra 30 or 40 innings that they, they threw, you know, in a championship run that, uh, that you know, other people aren't throwing or that they might not be used to throwing themselves. So I feel like Matt Cain is a little bit tired and it's not, you know, it's it's showing up in his velocity a little bit. But, you know, I think the, the velocity thing, is, it's not a huge velocity difference. So, I, you know, to say that he has the worst velocity of his career, it might be overblowing it a little bit. I just think that he's a little tired, and that means his mechanics aren't as sharp as they normally are, and that means he's missing spots by inches. And and when you watch him, it is there are there are small misses. They aren't you know setting up on the inside and hitting the outside. He still has good command. 
But, um, you know, since he's kind of a high fastball guy, he, he's missing spots by a little bit, and that means uh, guys are hitting home runs. So that's why you see the home run rate the way it is, and that's why, you know, so much of his line looks right except for, you know, ERA and whip. And that's why I think that, you know, I think he's going to get – I know – I mean, I know. I think he's going to get it together eventually. I'm really sure of that. Be confident in yourself. You know. Well, I know. You know, Saris, you know everything. No, I, I know. I feel like, you know, I, to me, I know that he's going to get it together. The question is when. And does he need, you know, the rest of an offseason again uh, to sort of re, to, re, to, to retool? This isn't a, a Tim Lincecum situation. I mean, with Tim Lincecum, there was multiple spots where you could be like, whoa, what's going on with this home run rate? What's going on with this walk rate? What's going on with this velocity? With, with Matt Kane, you're more like, and the velocity's down a little bit. The control's not quite the same, but it's not it's not a Tim Lincecum situation. Well, I'm, I'm curious what kind of uh, injury speculation you've read about because you're obviously in the San Francisco area. Is the Are the papers speculating on anything specific, or is it just like, oh, he struggled, maybe he's injured? Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's even vaguer than that. There have been, you know, the last report was there have been in-house discussions about Matt Cain's health. So, you know, they're not even talking about a specific body part. So, uh, you know. And and the interesting thing is, if it was just, oh, you know, he struggled two straight starts, he's given up 11 runs, eh, no big deal. Pitchers struggle, it happens. I mean, before that, he'd given up a total of, Seven runs over one, two, three, four, over five starts. So, I mean, Kane was pitching fine after a somewhat slow start in terms of ERA. But I think the biggest concern is the fact that he's walked seven batters in his last three innings. And this is Matt Kane, who's shown very good control over the last couple of seasons. I, it's, it's not like, I mean, it's as if it, obviously it's not to the degree of a, a Cliff Lee, but if Cliff Lee suddenly walks seven batters in his last three innings, you would wonder what the heck is up. So I think that's a real reason for concern and the fact that he hasn't been throwing first pitch strikes in his last two starts. So you wonder maybe there is something going on with that elbow or that arm. He's had a lot of innings under his belt at a young age. So you just wonder. I mean, it's not the runs. I think it's more the walks that are concerning to me, at least. Yeah, and yet his, you know, his, his yearly line in that, in that category is still not bad. Uh you know, his edge percentage is down from he used to be near elite and he's now average. So I think it's his command that's failing him. And, and then, you know, with the home runs, he's he's trying to be more fine. And that means he's going closer to the edge. And if he's not hitting his spots exactly, that means he's walking more guys. He's If you watch him, though, it's not it's not crazy wild. I mean, it's not it's not all over the place. It's just it's just like, oh, you know, damn, you missed that one. Oh, that's a walk, you know. Yeah, and you know, after all this, his BABIP is only 257, so it's not like he's getting hit all over the field. It's primarily that his left-on-base percentage is way below league average, easily a career low. He's never struggled this much from the stretch like he is right now, so you got to think that that's some short-term fluke. I mean, yeah, he's giving up a couple of more home runs than usual, but it's not a crazy number. I mean, a 12.7% home run per fly ball isn't that outrageous. It just looks kind of outrageous just because he's made a career out of suppressing home runs on fly balls. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's probably home runs with runners on, which is how, how those two things are linked. 
Um, so that that means big innings. That means a big ERA. You know, a couple solo home runs aren't a big deal. And it is the general Giants' philosophy to to walk a guy over, give up a guy, give up a home run with runners on. So um, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on. I I, I think that it's small, and I think he's a decent buy though. I, I put. Cole Hamels ahead of him just because there's fewer things going on and Cole Hamels is younger. But uh, Kane is on my buy low list. Yeah, you read my mind. I was going to say that I think he's still a good buy low guy. I mean, the slight injury speculation does concern me a bit with all those walks in the two previous starts. And so I I wouldn't rubber stamp 100% great buy low. And I do like Cole Hamels. He was the exact guy I was going to say. I like Cole Hamels as a buy low better. And he did. He has turned it around recently, uh, so I don't think you can buy him as low as maybe you could have previously. But I think Matt Cain does remain a decent buy low as people are clearly panicking. Uh, and the, the, the best buy low, I don't know um, if he still is a buy low, but David Price uh, was hitting 95 plus on the gun again when he came back, and he's uh, number five in the league right now in edge percentage, um, and he's done that most of his career. So I feel like command and velocity are back. He seems healthy. Uh, I'm all systems go on, on David Price. Yeah, agreed. I just doubt you can buy him low as his owners were waiting all this time for him to come back. Yeah. His injury, he's finally back and he's pitched very well so far. So I think his owners are fine standing pat and they're not going to sell him low. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right, moving on to the outfielders I discussed in the intro. We got Josh Hamilton who is finally heating up and Justin Upton, who has not hit since April. So Josh Hamilton batting 290 in a, a small sample of July at-bats with four home runs, while Justin Upton, he thought, I guess, the season only lasted through April because he had 12 home runs in that month, only four since, along with just three steals. So is, just, uh, is Josh Hamilton back, and is he ready to return the value that we basically expected of him in the preseason? I. Uh- I just don't think so. I mean, and it's funny. Yes, the power seems to be coming back. And, um, you know, he has actually improved some of his plate discipline peripherals. So he's swinging a little bit less at pitches outside the zone. And a little bit less is, is exactly that, a little bit less. Not He's still a free swinger. Um, you know, with the, with the temperature going up and, uh, you know, home runs in general, you know, leaving the park more. I am confident, more confident now that he can hit certain like 25 homers instead of 20. Um, but uh, with his strikeout rate the way it is and his speed uh, on the decline, you know, he's not going to give you stolen bases. He's not going to push his Babbitt real high. Uh, so to me, he just looks like a 260, 25 home run hitter. And that's, that's not very exciting. Yeah, I think the thing is, is that last season, Josh Hamilton's performance really inflated his preseason value and uh, I think he became overvalued and um, people's perception of him was just overinflated based on what he did based on a 26% home run per fly ball ratio and that wasn't going to happen again I mean he he left a a real good hitter's park moved into a pitcher's park even if he stayed in Texas he probably wasn't going to come close to replicating what he did last year so I think people's expectations of him was just way too high so what he is now is, you know, a 25 to 30 home run guy batting 270 because that strikeout rate is just not very good. And he, he's swinging and missing a lot more often than he has in the past. And, yeah, I mean, he's a, a 5 to 10 steal guy. So 
that's still good, and it's still probably a bit better than his pace is right now, but he's not going to be on a pace earning the value that most expected of him in the preseason. So Yeah, and, you know, Justin Upton has uh, a few things going for him that Hamilton doesn't. I mean, he still steals bases. He's going to at least give you double digits in that category. So that's that's a helpful in a year when, when stolen bases are down. His strikeout rate's not as bad as Hamilton's. His reach rate is not as bad. Um, and he just has a history of better batting averages and, and so I, I just think that he has a more of a cushion. And, you know, looking at Upton's stats, I'm not really that worried. He's improved his strikeout rate since the beginning of the season pretty much every month. Um, and his strikeout rate is above where he has been over his career. So I feel like he's going to improve his strikeout rate as the season goes on. And then if you look at his numbers, his his BABIP has been fine every month, which might make you worried. But really what's just happened is his he had that crazy power uh, to begin the season. And then he had crazy no power for two months. And now, you know, he's starting to show a little more power again. So uh, I'm not really worried about Justin Upton. I think it, when the season's done, he'll be over 260 with the batting average. Uh, and he'll be close to 30-10, you know, maybe a few more steals. The, the thing about Upton is that he's a classic case of recency bias, where you're looking at what have you done for me lately – rather than what have you done for me throughout your career. I mean, the guy has 16 home runs right now, 16 home runs. He hit 12 of those in April. Yet, his home run per fly ball ratio is still at the second best mark of his career. It's not like it's it's low and, and suddenly he becomes a buy low. So if you look at his season as a whole, rather than splitting up his home runs by month, you realize that Justin Upton is basically doing exactly – what everybody expected. Yeah, his batting average is down a bit because his BABIP is at a career low and, and he's striking out at a, a rate higher than the previous two years. But other than that, and yeah, his steals are down a bit. But other than that, I mean, he's basically on a pace that everybody would have expected. So it's a matter of when his production actually came, which I think is uh, affecting people's perception of his season. So I think that he's just going to continue doing what everybody expected of him. And uh, I, I don't think the steals really are going to rebound, but it seems like the Braves are just running less. Hayward's steals are down. Angelton Simmons is not stealing as many bases as we all expected. So, unfortunately— Also, you know, in terms of uh, team structure and, 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 and team goals, I think that they want power from Justin Upton and Jason Hayward more than they want them stealing bases. And, you know, just watching—you know, in terms of getting hurt and, and, and their career arcs and stuff, I, those, are, those are guys that steal bases when the opportunity is right. And, you know, with now with injury and power concerns, then I think they're gonna, just not going to focus on it. And there, there'll be guys that get five to ten stolen bases most years, but I doubt that they'll hit 20 again. Yeah, it's, it's clearly a, a team philosophy. Freddie Gonzalez has just decided— I mean, obviously the Braves have a ton of power in that lineup. There's no re- real reason to run themselves out of an inning. And so steals are down across the board, and they probably won't rebound. But between the two, Hamilton and Justin Upton, who would you prefer for the rest of the season? Justin Upton. Yeah, I agree. I think they're actually very, very similar, except I think Upton is going to produce a couple of more steals, plus he's hitting third in the lineup, so he'll get 15 to 20 more plate appearances, which should help boost his counting stats slightly. And, and I, you know, if, if I'm going to, if, if one of those guys is going to hit better than 275 the rest of the way, it's Upton. 
Yeah, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a real big difference in terms of batting average, but I think for me it's really the difference in steals where Upton has the greater upside. All right, moving on to New York. Uh, Ivan Nova is back from a triceps injury, and he's been pretty intriguing. And I, I was a little disappointed because last night uh, when I was doing my tears and I had read an interesting article that somebody had linked to me through Twitter talking about the fact that he has scrapped his slider, he's throwing more two-seamers, his velocity is up. And I checked around, and he is actually on teams in every single one of my leagues, including my 12-team mixed league, where I was confident he was still a free agent. So unfortunately, I can't do anything about it. But I'm pretty intrigued by Ivan Nova. Are you as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was a little worried. I had a little bit of visions of, uh, of Henderson Alvarez in my head. Uh, because, you know, yes, his, his velocity is up now, but his velocity has been pretty good uh, for his career. And, you know, his velocity has always been ahead of his strikeout rate. Um, but last year, he, he kind of showed uh, a couple more swinging strikes and a better strikeout rate. And he and then the ground ball rate went down. So I was wondering if he was trying to change as a pitcher or whatever. Um, but uh, if he puts together the the good swinging strike and the good strikeout rate with the good ground ball rate to, to kind of mitigate the, the, the home run concerns. Uh, there's definitely something to like there. Yeah. I, I mean, it reminds me of Chin Ming Wong because he also always had good velocity and he also had a slider and he always seemingly had the stuff to strike out more batters and he never actually did. Instead he, he would just pitch the contact, as the saying goes, and get ground balls. But it looks like Ivan Nova has actually transformed since last year that increased strikeout rate first showed its face, and, and now it's being sustained this year. So that strikeout potential, along with a 50% ground ball rate, is really intriguing. And a 311 Sierra, 321 XFIP, 363 ERA, uh, if if he gets good defensive support, which always is a question mark on the Yankees. I mean, right now his BABIP is 340, and that's hurt him in the past. And he owns a 429 career ERA versus a 399 Sierra. So he's had a bit of bad luck in the past, so he does need some better defensive support. But I think he could be real good and, and potentially even a 12-team a mixed league guy who's not just a spot starter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that that offense will get it going a little bit, and uh, should be should be decent for uh, for wins at some point. I, I hate chasing wins, though. Um, you know, he's he's he maybe using the two seamer a little more. That might be a good way to get ground balls while also using his curveball more. Um, the, the using a curveball and a slider um, as your main secondary pitches. Um, doesn't quite solve all platoon issues, but um, he, he has a show me change, and uh, and 93 is pretty good velocity for a starter these days. So uh, I'd put him behind like the Kluber, Erasmo, Kashner group, um, but uh, not too far behind, I guess. Yeah, and you know he kind of looks like a ground bowling Shelby Miller all of a sudden, given his pitch mix, uh, a couple of more curveballs obviously, and less fastballs than Shelby Miller. It's kind of hard to throw more fastballs than Shelby Miller. And and that's not usually a recipe to increase your strikeout rate, which is what we're seeing right now. So you got to wonder if he's throwing just fastballs and curveballs, if 
he's really going to continue striking out this many batters. I mean, I, I don't think any of us think that he's going to continue striking out more than a batter per inning. But it, it does look more and more likely that last year's strikeout rate surge is for real. So I like him, and I think he could be worth 12-team mixed league material. But let's move on to Philadelphia. Ryan Howard out six to eight weeks. And now it looks like the Phillies are going to be using some sort of a rotation down rough. John Mayberry, maybe Lance Nix is going to steal some at-bats at first base. Are any of these guys going to be worth anything in anything shallower than an NL-only league? I mean, the roof could maybe uh, do an approximation of Howard himself. I mean, he's, a, he's kind of like a 25 to 30% strikeout guy with power. Um, but uh, he's not really a prospect. He's uh, 27 or so, uh, so he's uh, he, he's kind of one of the, he's more one of these guys that's peaking and getting a chance late, um, you know, like a Garrett Jones guy, than he is a, a, an actual first base prospect. And it's not like you know Howard himself um, was kept in the minors because of Jim Tomey, and so you could say, oh well, Roof has only been kept in the minors because of Howard. I I don't think it's a similar situation. If you look at Roof's minor league career he kind of didn't didn't have power did this too much did this too little and then just kind of figured it out you know at his like third attempt at the high minors um you know at 26 25 26 years old uh when he was older than the competition so i think he's um he's not really a great prospect not really going to hit for batting average doesn't doesn't play enough defense to play in the outfield um very well so you're talking about a guy who might have six to eight week value in deep leagues as a as a bad batting average uh, power source. The the thing that concerns me about Ruff, and I'm going to call him Ruff, you can call him Roof, that's fine, <laughs> uh, is that I, I liked him last year. I mean, obviously he was coming off of a double A season that he hit 38 home runs, and, and damn, he's been old for his levels. I mean, a 27 year old, he's 26 now, but last year, I mean, he was 25 playing a double A, and he was 26 playing a triple A. That's Pretty freaking old. Anyway, he was coming off of a big double-A last year. But this year, in his first taste of triple-A, he was quite a disappointment. I mean, his ISO was only 141, only seven home runs and 305 at-bats. So I don't know what happened here. I mean, if this is – this seems like maybe the classic case of just being too old for your league. And and when he's facing better competition, he just crumples. And, and, and this is more of his true talent that – this is why he was not a prospect, because he's just not any good. I mean, if he couldn't perform at AAA in his first taste at his age, then it's hard to believe that he can really hit at the major league level. Yeah, it's true. I think, um, I mean, you know, he might be one of those run-into-power guys, you know. So, uh, you know, and this is his second attempt at the big, so at least he's, it's not his first time seeing it. So, I think if you were desperate for power in an NL only league, um, actually, you don't have to be desperate in an NL only league. You pick up guys like this all the time. Yeah, clearly. Talk- I mean, he he's got the chance right now at playing time, and so sixteen team OBP, and you need power, maybe. Yeah. Uh, what about John Mayberry? Uh, Mayberry's playing time also should increase. Uh, you know, usually he's been rotating, facing some lefties. Uh, in the outfield, but now this opens up some potential playing time at first base. I mean, obviously, as we've been talking about Ruff, he's no guarantee. So he could have a, a two-week cold stretch, he gets sent back down, and then it becomes 
John Mayberry and Lance Nix platoon at first base. So Mayberry clearly sees an increase in playing time. Now, throughout his career, he's hit lefties very well, righties not so much. This year, he's faced a lot more righties than lefties, and his Woba against both is pretty similar and not very good. But he he's not that much different than Darren Ruff. I mean, he strikes out a lot. He has pretty good power. But he also brings a, a bit of speed to the game that Darren Ruff does not. So from a fantasy perspective, given equal playing time, Mayberry might actually be a slightly more attractive option just because of the additional speed. Yeah, actually, well, you know, I you know against lefties, the clear thing is that he strikes out a lot less. So against lefties... His, his career strikeout rate is 18%. Against righties, it's 25 26%. So that's the kind of stuff that keeps his batting average down. It's a 280 batting average against lefties. Um, if, if you know that Mayberry is going to be in the lineup against lefties, then and you have a real deep bench, I have I do have benches that deep, um, then he does have some value as a lefty-only guy. And he seems to have improved a little bit. Um, he's showing a little more power against righties this year. Um, and his, he's got a career high bat against righties. So, you know, I, I, I do like Mayberry better. Um, and, uh, I do think, especially in OBP leagues, I think he's, uh, he's the better guy. Yeah. And while everybody's scrambling for down rough because he's supposed to be the primary starter now at first base, instead you sneak in and you swoop on to get John Mayberry, who is probably more likely to be available than Darren Ruff. And I think if he's going to play against all lefties and and some righties, I think Mayberry should continue to have some and all only value. Lance Nix, uh, he's the lefty in the bunch, so you'd think that he'd be getting playing time against righties, but he only has 99 at-bats on the season. Um, he hasn't been He hasn't received more than... Well, he received 324 at-bats in 2011, but, I mean, he's basically been a part-timer his entire life. So he's pretty much worthless. I mean, I don't think fantasy leaguers need to pay attention to him, right? Yeah, he's – I mean, I, I would see the most likely thing for him is to get released and get picked up by the Yankees. Oh, God. The Yankees collecting a bunch of scrubs, hoping that Yankee magic can inject – All the Knicks's. Oh, yeah. Jason and Lance, bring them both together. <laughs> Between them, Lyle Overbay, Travis Hafner, Vernon Wells, they're they're hoping for lightning in a bottle. Yeah. All right, let's move along to another guy who, just like Matt Cain, has really struggled over his last two starts. Jeff Samarja, you published an article, uh, an interview actually, about him yesterday looking at his 14 different split-finger fastballs (laughs) and... He gave up five runs in six innings, two starts ago, nine runs yesterday. You know you jinxed him, right? Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, in the in the in the talk that we had, we he actually was talking about, you know, his in-game strategy and and the things that he does when certain pitches aren't working, um, and so obviously. None of those strategies worked for him yesterday, and he couldn't get it going. But um, I do. I think that I think that there is a little inherent risk in a split finger pitcher, and it's a little bit like um, Ryan Dempster, risk. huh? Ryan Dempster. I thought maybe you were going to name him. Yeah. No. Also, uh, you don't see Hiroki Kuroda has been uh, very consistent. He's managed to avoid it, but um, you know, I think of it as a little bit like uh, Ari Dickey 
in the with the knuckleball there when i talked to samaj i got that clear sense of like that i've got to fiddle with it and and and, and i and he actually said i don't know where it's going so he, you know when he when he throws a good knuckleball i mean a good uh, split finger that's deep in his fingers like he said um the, the the real tumbling action one he doesn't know where that's going so on some level and he and he was kind of laughing about the idea that he would throw it for strikes so there's this one pitch that he can't really throw if he's behind the count. And that means he becomes a fastball slider guy when the, the split finger, when he can't get ahead in the count. So I guess I, I didn't really watch the game yesterday, but I would guess that he got behind the count. He couldn't throw a split finger and he was stuck trying to get somewhere with his fastball and slider. Yeah, it's possible. And it's obviously never a good thing to hear a pitcher say, when I throw the ball, I don't know where it's going. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of like Edison Volquez because he seems like he has no idea where the ball is going when he when he throws a pitch. And yeah, but you know, he, he throws a split finger like 15, 20% of the time, and with his uh, with his other pitches he throws 80% of the time, he has a much better idea where it's going. So it's just, you know, it's it's what I worry about a little bit with Mujica, is, uh, you know, Mujica throws his, his split finger uh, like 60% of the time. So I feel like if, you know, if he does, if he's behind the count, how does he throw that, you know? And does and he and he's got such a great walk rate. How is he doing that? So sometimes I I, I get nervous about Mujica. I'm a little bit less nervous about the shark. I think Samarja is fine. I, I I would buy him low. Yeah, and that brings up the question. So I I was reading a message board today, and you know there were some owners that were panicking about Samarja. What's up with him? Is there any explanation here? Do you think that people, fantasy owners, basically overweight recent performance and they, they try to find an explanation for poor performance when there really is nothing there and it's nothing more than a couple of bad starts that can happen to anybody that just happened to come in a row? I mean, these are pitchers here. They're not going to consistently allow two, three runs every single start. There's going to be times where they they don't have it in a game and they're, they're going to pitch poorly and that's going to happen two games in a row, and, and most of the time there's no explanation. It's just two bad starts in a row. Do you think that this is a mistake that a lot of fantasy owners have overrating uh, recent performance? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's what happens with, uh, with all of us in, in, in our lives. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's being human. But, um, you know, like, and on some level it is worth thinking about because they are – changing and and the the environment is changing and and you know even as Samarja talks about the evolution of his pitches he's changing his approach on a daily basis and stuff so on some level you do want to look at the past you know the past you want to look at the the recent history and even our weight even when we do projections we wait last season more than we wait the season before more than we wait the season before that so you you know you can't just go all the way and say, oh, you know, Albert Pujols has been great over his career, so therefore Albert Pujols is fine. You have to say, well, Pujols has been great over his career, but he has been less great the last three years and even less great last year. So therefore, there is something to be worrying about. But yeah, I mean, on a seasonal level, you know, just because the guy has been bad the last three or four starts and but was great the 10 before that, then I, I think that... You know, it's it's worth ignoring a couple of bad starts. Yeah, I mean, I seem to to see this a lot, where 
a guy who's not an elite pitcher, a Jeff Samarja is a perfect example, where he'll have two bad starts in a row, then the fantasy owner is panicking in a, a daily transaction league. He benches Samarja for his next start. Samarja pitches a, a, a gem, and then he's not really sure. He's like, all right, I'm going to give him one more start. He pitches another gem. Then he activates him. Then Samarja has a bad start. Then he benches him, and he's basically wrong every single time because he's trying to time the good and the bad starts, and you can't do that. Pitchers are human beings. They're going to mix in good starts and bad starts. Their previous start isn't necessarily indicative of what their next start is going to be. There's no hot streaks. There's no cold streaks. I mean, it happens that looking back, yeah, they were on a hot streak, but I don't think it's predictive that if they had two good starts in a row, that necessarily means they're going to have another good start. And I think this is one of the major mistakes, especially daily transaction owners make. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's talk about some AL-only starters. I uh, published the updated tier rankings this morning, and uh, I got one comment about Esmil Rogers because I mentioned in my commentary that I was not excited about him. I don't know what the excitement is about him. And, and somebody clearly liked him more than I did, mentioning his uh, called strikes, his foul strikes. I don't see much in Esmil Rogers. I don't really think he's even very exciting in an AL-only league, let alone a mixed league. I mean, am I missing something here? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't really get it either. The uh, strikeout rate's below average, and, you know, I, I don't really, you know, the ground ball rate's nothing special. The, the things that I look at first uh, aren't really showing me much. Yeah, I mean, he has good velocity, obviously. He's not inducing swinging strikes. He is getting a bit more called strikes this year than last year and previous season. But his first strike percentage is way below the league average, and it suggests that there's no way he could possibly sustain a walk rate below three. So he's pitching in a hitter's ballpark in a tough division. I I just don't really see any value here. And Yeah, on top of that, you know, I just have this uh, edge percentage sheet uh, open. He's got the second worst edge percentage in baseball right now, and uh, you know just just to show you who he's hanging out with, uh, he's just worse than Scott Diamond, Francis, Francisco Liriano, Jason Marquis, Edwin Jackson, Joe Saunders, and Yu Darvish, which are you know as much as we love Yu Darvish, we know that he's not uh, the biggest command guy in the world. So that's an interesting list though, because Scott Diamond actually does have good control. So. Uh, it, it's an interesting group of pitchers. I mean, uh, and, and Joe Saunders doesn't have bad control. I mean, he's basically one of those pitch-to-contact control guys. But then, of course, Liriano's on that list. And any list that Liriano is on, you assume it's a group of guys who have no clue where the ball is going, kind of like what Jeff Samarja was talking about. And yeah, exactly. It's that way with, like, every pitch. Uh, yeah, and I mean, Saunders, Saunders might have okay control, but, you know, he's had homer issues, you know, in when he wasn't in uh, – Homer suppressing parks. I feel like uh, I'm just going to make sure I'm not talking out of my butt here, real quick. But I, I do think that if you don't, yeah, he's had some Homer issues um, in in uh, Arizona. He's had Homer issues his whole career, actually. Um, but it was pretty bad in Arizona, and uh, you know, always usually above one per nine. I think if the, if you have decent control but not great command, then you're then you're liable to have homer issues because what you're doing is you're basically throwing to the middle of the zone or throwing to you know big chunks of the of the zone as opposed to little spots. Speaking of southpaws, talking about Joe Saunders and Liriano, 
How about Martin Perez on Texas? He's uh, already had five starts right now, a 208 ERA. So some might think that, ooh, I mean, this is a one-time top prospect. The kid is still only 22 years old. People might be thinking this is uh, you know, an exciting young prospect and he could be a great find over the rest of the season. I'm just not buying it. Are you? Yeah, you know, the weirdest thing about him uh, as a top prospect, you know, was that the numbers never really uh, suggested that's what he was. And he had, you know, in 2011, he had 88 innings in double A where he had a decent strikeout rate and okay numbers, but still bad whip. Um, Other than that, he's shown bad control uh, for the most part and uh, bad strikeout rates for a minor leaguer, uh, and, uh, you know, still gotten the uh, interest of prospect guys everywhere. So, I mean, he's obviously got some interesting things going on, one of those being age. But, you know, Fernando Martinez made me, you know, worry about giving a guy too much credit for his age. I want to see some good numbers and a a young age. I don't want to necessarily just see a guy who is, you know, doing okay and and keeping his head above water and also happens to be young. Um, so, you know, with the, in him, you know, 93-mile-an-hour fastball, good changeup, uh, good slider, good ground ball rates. Those are the good things I can say for him. His age is another thing. but uh, And the swing strike rate's okay, but uh, I think the history of strikeout rates suggests that he's not going to help you in strikeout rate. His history of control says he's not going to help you in control. And so you're talking about a guy who only gets ground balls as his main skill. So, yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not buying. Yeah, his plate discipline metrics are very strange because you, you referenced that swinging strike rate, which I was going to mention, 9.7%, a bit above the league average. It's pretty good. And that usually matches up with a, a strikeout per nine of around 7, 7.2. Instead, his strikeout rate is 4.8, which is pathetic. And then you got his first strike percentage, which is at 53%, again, way below the league average. That matches up to a a walk rate of like four. And yet his walk rate is actually about half of that. So lots of weird things going on in a small sample of 30 innings. Uh, I have to admit, though, it's somewhat intriguing. I mean, he has good velocity. The swinging strike rate is nice. He does seem to be a ground ball pitcher. So it seems like a guy that at some point could put it all together. But just given his history of poor strikeout rates, you just wonder maybe that's not going to get put together. And so right now, given what he's actually done, I think he'll be worthless with some glimpses of hope for the future that he might be a nice, interesting sleeper down the road. But right now, I think he's going to be pretty much worthless until he shows he can actually translate those swinging strikes into strikeouts yeah i i don't know i i think i would actually use this time to to sell him and even in a keeper league especially if i was contending i would just i just want to you know take advantage of this and not have to wait till he's 24 you know look at Derek holland uh, had some success when he came up first uh you know was a young guy had some velocity some stuff that you really liked left-hander you know stuff that you really liked he, he had growing pains, and it took us a while. We even were like, well, you know, are we going to get the Derek Holland we thought we saw? And then finally this year he throws the slider more often and, and, and kind of figures it out. 
I think that we're going to see a similar thing with Martin Perez. Maybe he's going to show it nice now, you know, take a couple of years to really get going. Maybe he'll be good two years from now. Maybe you won't even care because you'll have won a, a championship by then. You'll be on to the next prospect. All right. Well, that's a wrap, folks. So join us again on Sunday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper on the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.